JV Knowledge Podcast Network. On episode 75 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, talking about the last three years of insurance disruption with my co-host, Rob Galbraith, the most interesting man in insurance. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about tech that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. As we record this, it is Friday, January 28th, 2022, which is just nutty to me. It's been my 20th year of being in business at JB Knowledge. <clears throat> that 20th anniversary started uh, April 16th, 2021. So uh, <clears throat> it's been a dynamic 20th year. A lot of change, a lot of things happening. Kind of hard to believe it's already 2022, Rob. It's uh, just already done with the first month. I mean, it's nuts. Time's flying, man. It is. Yeah, I think the pandemic, right, has put us into this weird time warp. And um, I have yet to make my New Year's resolutions. So <laughs> I have, like, ideas. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I should put that on there. I should put that on there. And, yeah, I have not. And I do that every year. So I don't know about our listeners and how many folks. And you know, Sticking to it, of course, is another thing. But, um, yeah, I'm like, it's at the end of the month and I actually haven't formalized like what am i actually going to get done this year uh kind of as a commitment to myself so definitely behind the times wow um that yeah i i do do new year's resolutions i i, I just call them annual goals because uh that's the the, the phraseology we use in our business <clears throat> i said a few i can i can share a few of mine um of course you know me there some of them are about flying so like i'm i'm really into to flying and what I've been challenging myself to do, Rob, every year is just learn new stuff. Like that's the the theme of my goals every year is about self-improvement and learning new things because uh, my business has goals already. It's like so it's kind of redundant if I made my personal goal about my business goals. So I always do like stuff that's about personal improvement. So I challenged myself to run a half marathon because I had a big ankle injury last year. I had to have surgery for it. So I want to run a half marathon this year. Uh, I wanted to get my single engine commercial seaplane license, and I just did that two weeks ago. So I did it like a little early in the year, um, but I just got scheduled. I found a school that does multi-engine commercial seaplane training in New Orleans. They just got their um, authorization to do the multi-part, and so I'm going to be doing that in February. Uh, so I am crazy excited. Nice. Challenge myself to read 12 books. I'm already two in. I want to learn the mandolin this year. I've, I I learned guitar oh. during COVID, and I want to learn. I've always loved the mandolin, uh, just listening to it. So I want to learn that. Uh, I want to take a survival class this year. Like I want to get dropped in the woods somewhere and try and live. Um, <laughs> Naked so, and afraid. <laughs> yeah, right. With clothes on, maybe, or maybe with not. I don't know. I don't know. Depends. <laughs> Um, Semi-naked. Yeah, right. Semi-naked and afraid. Can I at least have underwear? Just underwear? Maybe some shoes. Undies and shoes. (laughs) Undies and shoes and afraid. There we go. Um, You know, so I've got a few on these. I want to do a sprint triathlon. I'd like to get a reciprocal concealed carry license so that it actually has reciprocity in the other states I go to. Uh, Texas has gone to open carry where you don't even really need a license to carry a gun around. Uh, It's like the Wild West here again. But all, all kinds of stuff. You know, Setting goals is a good thing. 
as long as you actually develop a plan to get them done. <laughs> so I was pretty happy with last year's goals. And uh, whatever yours are going to be, Rob, I-, I hope that uh, I hope they're successful. A reminder, by the way, out there in listener land, if you're watching this on um, on video, that um, you can subscribe to our podcast that Rob and I have been doing now for like a year and a half together um, by texting geek out to 66866. Make sure you never miss an episode. Um, speaking of podcasts, I was uh, a guest on, you know, InsureTech LA, uh, Gil, uh, Galad uh, does this uh, podcast called InsureTech Talk. And so I, I just interviewed with him two days ago. I think that comes on in like three or four weeks. And he and I had a really good good chat. I, fascinating. Uh, he's really trying to build up a, a whole InsureTech scene over there in Los Angeles. And uh, um, it was an exciting talk. Uh, so make sure you listen in on that. So let's jump in. And we're going to kind of weave the news in, Rob, as we go through this, because the news today dovetails in with our topic of three years of disruption. And three years is special. And people are going, why three years? That's an odd number to pick. Well, that's when my good buddy and co-host, Rob Galbraith, wrote and published his book that I have thoroughly enjoyed. And I've had people in you know, that I know read this book and I've read the book and it really taught me a lot and it, and it, and it really helped me shape a lot of my thinking. Um, and, and Rob, tell us about the, the book itself and what the journey was to writing it and publishing it um, before we get into talking about what happened since then. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard to believe that it's actually been three years and um yeah, so I think a lot of folks uh, know parts of this this story. You know, I spent the bulk of my career at USA, which is in San Antonio, Texas, where I'm based. And um, one of the things about USA that um, I think was really important in terms of me and my journey and in, in kind of getting in this uh, area of InsureTech is a very innovative company. So, for instance, when I first started the company, uh, back in the the late '90s, uh, and the internet right was just kind of coming a thing, and people were trying to figure out how can we you know do business on this. A lot of other insurance companies, it was like, oh well, we'll put a website out there and we'll tell you where our local agent was. Well, USA you know didn't have local agents; they sold uh, business directly to military members and their families because military families move around every two to three years. It doesn't make sense to create a relationship with a local agent. So the relationship is directly with the company. And if you can believe it, like they used to do business with snail mail. Uh, USA was one of the very first companies in the early 80s that kind of set up a large, you know, 800 number and a call center. Uh, And so when the internet comes, right, they're like, hey, we don't want to just like tell people where to go. Like we actually want to buy and sell insurance directly online. Like you get a quote and and you can buy it directly online. You don't have to talk to anyone. And so, um, you know, one of the very first companies to do that. And then the 2000s, when you know mobile computing comes around, uh, we have unfortunately, of course, 9/11 followed by the wars in in Afghanistan and Iraq. So they're thinking about like these what I call extreme use cases. You know, we've got that soldier that's on at two in the morning in one bar in the middle of remote Afghanistan, and you know they may have some banking or insurance transaction that they're trying to do. Right? <laughs> How can we serve that 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 customer? And oh, by the way. If we can enable those type of use cases, then you know that busy person that's at you know the mall with a crowded Wi-Fi, <laughs> we can serve their needs as well too, right? And so you kind of have this porthole of this kind of you know military, active duty military type customer and serving their needs, but in a way that actually served the needs of everyone. I mean that's kind of where you know the the the, the whole uh, 
the public was going in terms of what they they wanted to do. And so, you know, when you have that kind of mindset, it, it forces you to innovate. Our previous uh, CEO, Joel Rogles, uh, who had been the chief financial officer in the army, had been a board member, then was the CFO at USA and then became a CEO in, in the late 2000s. You know, he really kind of formalized this and, and pushed this and kind of innovate in everything we do. And so that culture of innovation really took uh, hold and took root. Um, USA was one of the first companies to actually deposit your check. Like you take a picture of your check and deposit it and stuff like Jeez. that. So they had kind of a, a history of these innovations. And so that allowed me as a leader to, when we were facing problems, right? Uh, how do we ensure people in catastrophe prone areas and things like that to look at solutions like aerial imagery, to think about things like telematics, et cetera. And so you know, I was fortunate enough to to start down this path of technology and then to meet some of those promising kind of early startups. And it was like a whole new world, right? I had friends from high school that had gone to Silicon Valley and I kind of knew Silicon Valley's out there and right, but and I used Facebook and Twitter when they came out and stuff like that. But like they never intersected with my world, my insurance world, right? Until kind of the mid 2010s. And so um, just seeing some of these people come through uh, the doors at USA and hearing about their technology and what they could do, but yet understanding that they didn't really speak insurance. So when I would say, hey, I love your technology, it sounds like that could help us reduce our claims frequency. You know, is, is that correct? They'd kind of give me that blank stare, like frequency, what are you talking about? I was like, well, this is, you know, basically a you know, one-on-one language for insurance professionals. And so that ultimately led me to write the book. Um, it took me all of 2018 and and was published in early 2019, so three years uh, ago. And, and really my goal with the book was to uh, two audiences, that in, career insurance professionals such as myself to kind of let them know about this world that I had kind of you know been privileged to to get a glimpse on of InsurTech and kind of you know what the future holds and to say this isn't a fad. You need to understand how these emerging technologies, you know, can really impact the insurance industry as well as for technologists, investors, right, outsiders to say, hey, here's some basic insurance 101 concepts. You don't have to get your CPC designation. You don't have to get your agent's license, right? And study for example. Here's just some working knowledge that's gonna really help you. And everyone kept telling me like, oh, you gotta pick one of those two. You can't write a book for both. And you know, the, the thing I'm probably most proud of is that I was successful in my goal because I get uh, feedback from readers across the spectrum about how valuable that they found the book, both folks that are new to the industry and starting up and looking to either enable or disrupt it, as well as career professionals to say, ah, now I get it. Now I see what all it's, it's beyond just the marketing hype, right? But there's tangible value here in InsurTech that we can take advantage of. Sure. And you, um, the, the domain is endofinsurance.com. The book is called The End of Insurance As We Know It, How Millennials InsurTech and Venture Capital Will Disrupt the Ecosystem. Um, that's the the actual title, but what it, it dives into is explaining just these basic fundamentals about how the success of an insurance company is measured first off, and how the financials work, and talking about underwriting profit, and, and you know the, the the profit of the entire business, talking about expense ratios, talking about typical expense ratios, and you know you you you've got um, different strategies in insurance just at a corporate level, among the big insurance companies, some are fine with actually underwriting losses because they make up, they, you know, they want to make up for it on investment gains, right? They really just want the money. <laughs> they want the, they want the money and they want to make money on the float. Uh, cause that's really what they're doing rather than making an underwriting profit. Of course, we've seen long-term, those kind of companies often get themselves into trouble when the market turns down and you can no longer make an investment gain. Uh, if you don't have an underwriting profit, you end up in a lot of trouble and usually their expense ratios are too high. 
Um, their uh, their loss ratio is too high. You know they 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 get a little bloated on expenses. They get a little bloated on on paying out too many too many uh, uh, too much, and you know really not paying out too much. In, in other words, uh, insuring in the wrong the wrong things. You know, and uh, we've seen them get pretty in trouble. And then, you know, the last three years something interesting's happened, Rob. And you've covered it a lot. I've covered it a lot. A lot of venture capital has poured, I mean, billions and billions of dollars has poured into this space. And they've threatened or promised to fundamentally disrupt the way that insurance is is built. And, and at the surface, some of it sounds really good, right? Like reducing friction on underwriting, reducing friction on claims, reducing touch points, um, which, which theoretically should make the loss ratio go down, you know, the underwriting profits go up, should hopefully reduce expense ratios because you don't need as many people to power a people-powered industry if you can make it digital. Um, at the end of the day, what's ended up happening, though, is a lot of these companies just lost money, right? It just just straight up losing money, dumping money on, on ad budgets largely, on cost of customer acquisition, uh, and and really never showing a path to profitability, and they're really getting shellacked right now. So what what do you think? You know, since this book was written three years ago, you had this huge run up, and now we've it's almost like we've got a little reckoning right now. What 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 are your thoughts on the last three years? Yeah, it it's blown up to an extent that I I probably um, couldn't have imagined uh, three years ago, just in terms of the size of the funding right now, we're over $10 billion as of, you know, Q3 2021 kind of pouring into the insure tech space. And, and it's changed a little bit, you know, early on, there was a lot of startups, right? People with new ideas that were getting funding and that funding was being spread around. But, uh, as we've started to pick winners and losers, right? Most of the, the bulk of that funding is actually later, uh, rounds that are going to more established firms. And, um, you know, I hear mixed messages, so I, I can't really comment in terms of like, you know, is there enough seed in series A's that are still going out there? I think you're starting to see some larger seed in series A to people that have maybe been entrepreneurs once, right. And they're kind of going for the second go around or things like that. But, um, anyway, I, I do think there's maybe less new and there's some sense of like, Hey, you know, is there even room for a, a brand new startup out there? I, I think you're totally onto something, James, in terms of, you know, people were slow to come to insurance because you're right, highly regulated. But I think that, um, Uber and Lyft and what they did for ride sharing really kind of put a, a different lens on insurance as well as the great financial crisis, right? So we know there was kind of fintech that followed the great financial crisis. Um, you know, we got to reform these banks, push for open banking, things like that. I think, you know, working in a highly regulated environment such as taxis and finding ways to kind of circumvent that regulation the way Uber and Lyft did kind of open up possibilities for, hey, we're going to see insurance. And so when a lot of people from the outside in look at insurance, they see the agents, the brokers, right? And they kind of laugh about that, that birthday, you know, uh, uh, card you might get, a card, you know, it's <laughs> automatically spit out from your agent and stuff like that. And you go, what good is this person? Well, what value are they getting to me? And so, you know, I think this idea of uh, disintermediation, selling direct, we're going to cut out the that commissions that agents are going to do, right? We're going to cut out uh, uh, claims TPAs. We're going to do all this ourselves in-house. And to your point, like, hey, those agents and brokers, they actually do add value. It's not just about selling, right, and the acquisition costs, but it's also about the servicing and the same on the TPA side. And so I think uh, we've seen a lot of the insurtechs, even the folks we've talked to, 
hey, they started direct, but then they actually had to pivot over time to go through the independent agent model. I know like, uh, you know, I think about Neptune Flood and Jim Albert talked about that. Hey, yeah, I give quotes on my website, but that's like five to 6% of my business over, you know, 90, 95% is through agents. Hippos that way. You know, you know, we're going to talk about in the news, Root laying off, you know, over 300 employees uh, this week. And part of that is their sales force, you know, and and so they've had a partnership with Goosehead uh, Insurance as an agency-based model and kind of pivoting to that. So I, I do think let's, there was just a lot of uh, misperceptions. Yeah. Let's pause and dive into Root for a second because that we can't just yeah. gloss over yeah, yeah. that. And I'd rather just talk about can't it now. Root, Root's a, it. Root raised a lot of money. Um Root raised a lot of money. What do you think happened here? Is this really just pivoting away from their own direct? Because a lot of this money is being spent on direct sales and marketing expense, right? And what you're seeing in the trim back is trimming back their direct sales and marketing expense. And then, you know, these these companies that promise disintermediation are, are reverting back to tr- traditional channels. <laughs> and and uh, and then, then, you, then you have to question, well, what makes them any different at all than any other carrier or any other MGA that's on the market? Yeah, hundred percent. I think a lot of these companies, quite frankly, have just done a better job at marketing. Um, so Roots, I think about Hippo, I think about Lemonade. But when you kind of pull back the hood, you know, there isn't that much that's fundamentally different. It's not necessarily a new business model. Oftentimes, it's the same kind of coverage forms that you've used, and um, you're going to get the the same type of coverage. And uh, to your point about being venture capital uh, backed, right? It, it was really about attaining market share. Well, as most insurance professionals know, it's not necessarily hard to get market share, but it's hard to do so profitably. And so, right, there's kind of this race to see if you can you know, raise greater rounds or, or have some type of exit. But at a certain point that investors, whether it be you know publicly traded shares, whether it be VCs, right, they're, they're going to want to know the, the profit. And I know a lot of naysayers have really focused on that. And I think you know, overly so. I do think that there is a, a time to kind of balance building market share with getting profits uh, and certainly see an aggression that you don't necessarily see in mutual uh, insurance companies, your dad, your dad's and your granddad's insurance. Like there hasn't been a lot of dynamicism in the, the industry. So I think it was good to start to see that, but I do feel like you're seeing a bit of a reckoning. And I do feel like there's still room for insure tech, but you got to have moats. You still got to have a competitive advantage. You got to be doing something different than the other competitors are. It can't just be only, you know, better marketing. Um, we see, right. I'm bombarded of watching all the football players with all the ads from Geico from progressive from USA and others, right. It's like, you're not going to outspend state farm in terms of marketing. And so you've got to truly build something new, build something different, differentiate yourselves and your uh, business model. That's really interesting, Rob. Let's back up a step, though, and just talk about what InsureTech even means. Like, what what does that mean? Because technology has been used in insurance for decades. I mean, hell, most of the big carriers are still using the same technology they used from 40 years ago, AS400 systems and COBOL. They have, I mean, they've got some big old legacy systems that are still chunking out quotes, still producing all these policy binders. Uh, it's the, the same old technologies being used. So, I mean, in, insurance has been, uh, as, as, has really been the beneficiary of technology for a very long time. So that so that can't be the definition of insure tech that you use technology and insurance because all the all the legacy carriers have been using insurance for decades. I found an interesting definition on Insurion on their website 
They said that it refer InsureTech refers to a new insurance technology that improves the customer experience, simplifies policy management, and increases competition. I would add to that and also uh, accelerates the claim process. And then maybe uh, by increasing competition, reduces prices. Um, if I referenced your book, I would say an InsureTech is a company that uses uh, revolutionary or disruptive technology to reduce our expense ratio. Uh, so we're trying to we're trying to reduce the cost of providing insurance and the cost of administering insurance uh, through automation, uh, through integration, uh, through intelligence. Right. That's to me is the definition of insure tech. Because otherwise, um, otherwise some of these companies. And by the way, root. This is just an astounding number. Uh, I went to uh, one of the research sites I use. Root Insurance has raised one point seven billion dollars. The most recent fundraise they did was the $300 million debt raise they just raised yesterday from BlackRock Financial. So they have consumed billions of dollars of investor capital to the point that they now had to get a loan to stay alive. They cut tons of staff. And to do what? Like at the end of the day, and again, we're not we're not saying InsureTech's dead. In fact, InsureTech is very well and very alive, and has challenged all the major players to really cut down their onerous underwriting applications, to ask far few fewer questions, and use public data sources. I would say big data is a core tenet of InsureTech. You know that you that that you leverage public data sources, so you don't have to ask so many damn questions on your underwriting questionnaires, right? So we've seen these InsureTechs push the mainline competitors off of center on cutting down the size of their forms, going direct to consumer, making it simple to underwrite, making it quick to get a decision, uh, accelerating the claims process. All those are good for the customer and ideally would result in lower rates and better service, right? Yeah. So, uh, and I'm curious to, to, to hear your take on this as the technologist, right on our podcast, because uh, you've been kind of, you know, living this from the front lines at, at JB Knowledge. But one of the, the foundational things that I think people misunderstand about the insurance industry is that, you know, it's adverse to technology, right? Or it's late to the game. We're actually the opposite is true. They were early adopters of technology. And that's part of the problem, right? The 1970s mainframe, the 1980s desktop computer. And so um, you build up all this technical debt. And so keeping the trains running in a highly regulated business, right? Particularly claim systems. And I, I know you've got a new claim system that I want to hear you, right? It's very, very challenging. And that's why finally in the 2010s, there was a recognition that all this buildup of technical debt, we've got to overcome that. And so there was a big focus on digital transformation, right? And overhauling systems. And you saw people moving from proprietary systems on-prem that didn't really integrate with any other systems to the guide wire, to the duck creeks and others that are in the more platform ecosystem, right? And what I always tell firms is that, yes, those investments are important and necessary, but that's actually just keeping up with the Joneses. That's not giving you a competitive advantage. It's how you leverage this new system you know, if you do make it a robust ecosystem, you are able to integrate new insure techs quickly that may not even exist today, but two years from now are going to be a critical strategic partner for you that improves your billing process or whatever it is, right? That's the part that's going to be critical. So James, uh, to your point, insure tech is not just, you know, technology and insurance, but it's uh, applied in new and novel ways to allow you to do things that you were not able to do before with traditional technology. And so I, I you know, I've turned back on you, right? I know you've got claim systems, you've written compliance systems, you're getting to the policy admin space, right? 
what has that experience been like? And what are you seeing as you're out there giving demos of your products, as you're talking to, uh, to customers and clients, what are they looking for? Where are they lacking? And what are you able to provide to them that they didn't have before? Thanks for asking. That's, it, it's, it's been a really interesting journey. I got into insurance accidentally in 2004 when I, I was asked to build a software that would allow an insurance inspection company to, to integrate or interface with a few different big carriers. State Farm, USAA, and Nationwide were some of the ones that I had to integrate with. But we had to build this inspection management system, and then we had to dive into what... what and then I was like, why are they doing inspections? <laughs> I mean, that, that was always my big question, because I knew nothing about insurance. And so I had to find out, well, when you're going through underwriting, you want to actually know if the, if the house that you're, that you're insuring isn't already screwed up, right? I mean, because... You might get a claim. You might end up paying for a lot of damage that was already done to the property. And so you want to do a roof report. You want to do a house report. You want to actually measure the house and make sure that it's accurate, that they didn't misreport, misrepresent the house to you. Well, what's really interesting to me is that InsureTech is also about data, not just the technology. It's about having data and using data. And, and, and if you remember the, the, the definition, um, Stonebreaker from MIT um, he's wicked smart up there at MIT. I, I always thought he defined big data best. It's big volume, big velocity, big variety. That's the definition of big data. Big volume, big velocity, big variety. A ton of data. I mean, we're talking about exabytes of data moving very quickly from a ton of different data sources. And so when you look at that and you look at what really sets apart what I think are the really innovative companies now is that they leverage big data really well. In particular, when they're making underwriting decisions, instead of asking the insured 500 questions, they're asking them five. And they're pulling public data sources. Instead of having to go inspect the property to verify the property line and the house measurements and the dimensions, even roof conditions, they're either going to just use satellite data and current satellite data, or they're going to use satellite data combined with drones and maybe a light inspection. So they're paying a fraction of the inspection cost. So that's really what I've seen is this really big change. But you know, I've, I've spent an inordinate amount of my time over in claims and work comp. And really, of course, the big goal there is to get people back to work right? Like that's the big, big, big goal. And so technology has always been used to try and drive um, the the transaction time down. So it's a, a better connection between the adjuster and the claimant, because the better that relationship is, the more they communicate, the more likely it is that you're going to be partners with that, that worker to get them back to work. And so technology has been pivotal in that text messaging and emails and then regular communications and systems that have, you know, we've built multiple claim systems now that have been designed to provide substantially more information on what's going on with the claimant to the adjuster so they can make better decisions and to highlight claims to them that the system thinks are not going to go well. To use big data combined with predictive analytics to really deep dive into claims where the reserve is not set properly, which is a huge problem in claims, is if you if you don't set the reserve properly and use data, but you use emotions, you can really take some big misses and cause some huge problem, either over-reserving, which is actually a huge problem because that really affects the earnings per share of public companies, or under-reserving, which can create huge financial consequences later. Um, that's been a really big thing that we've been working on that I've had to had to really learn from is that um, you know there's EPS there's earnings per share consequences on everything that we do on reserving on policy on premium you know I work with a lot of self-insured groups and funds and you know they really want to get their hands around this because they don't want those big catastrophic events to come along and wipe out their group they also don't want to over reserve and you know it, it, you're always walking this this fine line 
uh, between those two things. So when I look at InsureTech, um, I look at how well you use big data, how well you use um, automation systems, even old automation systems. But definitely, all of my customers and all the people I work with definitely suffer from the innovator's dilemma. And that's the funny thing. Insurance is not a laggard. It's actually a prime mover in technology. And because of that, we have a burden of legacy software and hardware that's holding us back a bit. So it's actually been harder for the people that I've seen and worked with to adopt to cloud-based technologies because they still have these massive investments in on-premise data centers. And they still have these systems that Rob have been doing really well for 30 years. At calculating, <laughs> at calculating premium and producing binders and handling the underwriting, but they're all based in on. They're sitting on AS four hundred systems. They're sitting in old legacy mainframe Java code on maybe a RS six thousand or something really old, you know. And they're they're kind of limping and keeping it banded and patched along because it, it works so well. And 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 I'll be honest, I think one of the big opportunities in InsureTech is an area I'm going after, and that's you know you have these really big systems that cost. And Rob, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars to implement. Hundreds of millions, yeah. Hundreds. I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars to implement some of these big systems that should not cost that much. You talk in your book about the cost of insurance and how it really shouldn't cost as much of it do- as it does to um, to underwrite a policy or to handle a claim. There's you know a bunch of common metrics in insurance we look at, like revenue per policyholder. But like one of the big ones, average cost per claim. You know, how much are we paying out in claims? Average time to settle a claim. But then you, you get into the, the really big ones like loss ratio and expense ratio. And the expense ratio is the area that I think that IT ends up just nailing at these companies. Because if you spend a quarter billion dollars on a new policy and claim system, it's going to impact your expense ratio. <laughs> you know? It, I mean, <laughs> I mean it, it's, it's, it's going to impact your expenses. It's going to impact your profitability. And so I think there's a big opportunity to actually deliver some more reasonably priced technology that doesn't have a five to one implementation to licensing ratio. And that, that would mean like for every dollar you spend on the license, you're going to spend $5 implementing it. That's not healthy. That's not good. And, and um, you know, the other area, Rob, I've seen really holding back modern carriers big time. And by the way, this is holding back most insurtechs because when you pull the hood off most insurtechs underneath that hood is a bunch of legacy mainframe applications or they outsource it to big TPAs or carriers who actually do the, the actual guts of this. One of the big areas that, that a lot of are really getting held back on in increasing competition and being innovative is the ability to quickly roll out lines and states. Um, and I have experienced this on this podcast a substantial portion of companies that we've interviewed, when I go to get a quote, because I always go to get quoted, if they're an MGA or their carrier, I go to get a quote before I talk to them. And very few have had coverage in Texas. Texas has a $1.7 trillion economy with 28 million people. You would think that Texas, New York, Florida, and California would be the top four on anybody's list on where to expand. And yet you, you see a lot of slow-moving line and state expansion. And when you really dig under the covers and you go to these companies and you find out how long it takes to add a line and a state to their technology platform, that's, that's, that's a bigger hurdle than the licensing and regulatory picture is. And so that's what uh, really has me up at night. And there's, I think there's a lot of work being done on that by a lot of folks, including me, is build, build solutions that scale up to an enterprise level, but allow um, 
the uh, allow smaller players to jump in. Because, like, you know, I service a bunch of self-insured groups, funds, and companies. I, my, my target with TerraClaim is not really the carrier market. It's actually the SIG, SIF, regional TPA market. And because they have, to have, they have to do all the same functions, all the same functions that everybody else has to. And they can't afford a $250 million implementation budget for their, you know, for their claims and policy software. They can't do it. You know, so you, you've got to be able to deliver a system that works for them. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, to your point, James, like one of the benefits about emerging technology overall, right, and, and modern systems um, is that you can deliver enterprise level system for so many more people, right? Rather than it was just the largest companies that could afford it in the past when it was hundreds of millions of dollars. And then everyone else, right? They're kind of stuck with whatever outdated systems they can't keep pace. And so now with the advent of modern technology and subscription models, right? And even usage-based models, things like AWS, right? Where you may be paying based on usage rather than right that fixed amount for, for on-prem or whatever, right? It, it just allows so many more uh, competitors and in, in to be able to do a lot of the same functions at a fraction of the cost. Some companies are taking advantage of that. Others are not. And, and, you know, you mentioned in my book, when I talk about the expense of insurance, you know, part of what I do is even break down the expenses to say, look, you know, typically if a company is incurring expenses on a product that I buy, those expenses hopefully benefit me in some way, right? Whether that's R&D at the pharmaceutical companies or whatever, right? Like, yeah, I get that I'm paying expenses, but ultimately it's going to benefit me as a customer. But if you break down some of the most major expenses for insurance companies, you know, it's marketing and advertising. Well, as an existing company, it doesn't help me that Geico's spending over a million dollars, right? Like advertising on TV, that is me no good, right? Um, all the staffing, the offices, keeping the lights on so that, you know, many of these people are involved in manual workflows or manual touch points, whether it's not fully automated and then outdated technology, right? Um, and it's like, look, I don't wanna have to spend five times as much on your system as somebody else's system that does the exact same thing, right? Um, as yours, it's just built on more modern tech. And so, um, yeah, you're like, wow, most of these expenses actually aren't like a loss adjustment expense. Maybe that benefits me if I you know, file a claim and I've got somebody to respond to that and they're using some tools or whatever, right? But for the most part, many of the expenses that insurance companies have don't provide a direct benefit to their to their customers. So I, I want to ask you, you talked a little bit about, you know, policy admin systems and compliance. And I know you're talking with like a lot of, a lot of digital MGAs and, and, you know, that's been a really hot thing to do over the last year. I think people have seen how hard it is to sell, you know, the, the, the sales cycles, 12 to 24 months, right. Selling into incumbents. And so a lot of people said, Hey, I'm going to take my tech. I'm going to become a digital MGA. But they're starting to realize like, oh, that doesn't mean I just sell something, but I actually have to service that policy and administer it. And so I'm curious uh, what you've seen, again, from your perspective under the hood. The consequence has been that TPAs are busier than they've ever been. That's been the consequence. Because um, I think what you have is a lot of folks who are brokers who love selling and are good at selling. And they've been, if they're lucky, making their 15% broker commissions. Of course, we know those have been getting squeezed in, in, in many cases. But uh, they, they're, they're looking at MGAs, and MGAs might make 30%, right? And they're like, man, how do I get to be an MGA? That's why I often called these digital MGAs super brokers, because they're trying to double their commission. But then they take on the burden of administration. You have to deal with claims and policy. That's, that, that, that's the catch, right? 
the, the, you know, the thing you're not doing is carrying the risk. Someone else is. And that's why a lot of these companies are doing digital MGAs rather than being a carrier because they can't or don't want to raise enough money to actually get licensed as a carrier. Now, some of them are buying carrier license, uh, you know, buying basically, uh, you know, paper carriers that aren't actually carrying risk yet. Um, so they can jump into actually carrying risk, but that that's much more complicated. Uh, requires a lot more capital. You got you got to really think about that. And so it's been a very very interesting uh, few years and, and three years in particular since you published your book. Um, we've seen a lot more funding flowing into insurtechs. A lot of them choosing and, and pivoting from being a solution provider, like what well, we're a solution provider. We provide insurtech solutions to existing incumbents to help them revolutionize the way they manage risk. Uh, whereas some have said, you know, forget that. We're going to go be a digital MGA. Uh, but then they go, oh, my gosh, I got to manage claims. And they're like, well, we can just do that ourselves. We'll just hire two or three claims adjusters and, you know, build a revolutionary claims experience. But the reality is, you know, you can streamline claims to some point, but you still got to have a X number of adjusters to X number of claims. And that's really where they get in trouble. So they start reaching out to TPAs and they're like, hey, TPA, we need you to manage claims. By the way, can you do policy administration? Well, the TPAs aren't equipped for that yet. They don't have they don't have a carrier MGA level policy administration system. All they you know, most TPAs manage policy data. They know what the policies are, but they can't issue a binder, they can't do quoting and rate setting, right? So they have to then become a carrier. So you you end up having TPAs and digital MGAs and carriers all having a very similar set of needs at different scale and different levels. And I think that's really what I've seen going on is you have these super brokers that are digital MGAs. They want double the commission. They don't want to do double the work. They try and dump it onto the TPA. The TPA then has to then really beef up their policy administration or create that capability, acquire the technology for it. And uh, a lot of the technology providers aren't well equipped to, to deal with policy administration at that level, at a small level. And uh, it's been a mess. I'll be honest. It's been a bit of a mess. It's created a lot of opportunity in the market, but it also has created a, a lot of stress and anxiety in a lot of folks trying to deal with the, the, this, this uh, burden of administration. And uh, administration is what no one wants to do, but everyone has to do because, you know, it's how you process claims and get things done. So I think that's been the really, the really big aha moment. Um, and uh, again, you're seeing the the big companies that said they could do claims and do policy way faster than anybody else. You're seeing them falter right now. You're seeing them falter on profitability, and you're seeing them falter as a result of that on their stock price. And um, that's why you're seeing people pull back from IPOs because they don't want the scrutiny or don't think they can stand it. Um, you know, the public market is wising up to this and they're saying, hey, maybe this isn't that much different than everybody else. Why are we assigning? I mean, like Lemonade, <clears throat> wrap, around, wrap your brain around this. <clears throat> Lemonade had a, a, and even if you just compared their, 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 their value, their capital, their market capitalization to their gross premium written, it was wildly out of line with the market capitalization to gross premium written to all the other mainline incumbent carriers. Why is that the case? Why are they that much different? Yeah, you know, well then they you know from a business perspective, Rob, they better be that much more profitable or they better grow a lot faster because otherwise there is no difference. I mean, they can be as you know, they can be as efficient as you want if it doesn't show up in the numbers and the profitability of the year, what's the point? 
Yeah, and I actually just got this uh, question uh, earlier uh, this week from somebody, and he said, you know, Rob, where do you think we are in InsureTech? Are we on our fours? Are we crawling around? Are we walking? Are we running? Are we, you know, teenagers driving the car out? Or are we fully grown adults? And I, I said, you know, I think we're the still crawling around. We're maybe lifting up on the table and thinking about, you know, walking on two legs, but I still think it's very early days. And um, to your point, like a lot of the new businesses that have been created, I, I just, um, when you peel back, you know, the marketing and the, the hype, there isn't that much that's fundamentally different. And um, somebody asked me, do you think the incumbents are undervalued if, you know, you kind of compare to, to Lemonade and, and potentially being overvalued and seeing that market correction? And I said, no, I actually feel like traditional insurers are being fairly valued because insurance just isn't that attractive from an investor standpoint. You know, it's a high capital business. It's a low margin business. Right. And so I get it compared to other alternatives. Right. Insurance isn't necessarily uh, a space where you're going to expect a lot of returns as a, a shareholder. You know, maybe they pay dividends or whatnot, but it, it's certainly not a high growth stock. And so because so many incumbents have been around for decades in my book, I talk about the top 10 carriers and the youngest being Progressive, which was founded in 1936. You don't see the dynamicism that you see in a retail where you go from a Sears Roebuck to a Walmart to an Amazon or an entertainment, right? Where you kind of go through, you know, movies and then Blockbuster and, and then Netflix. You don't see that in the insurance industry. It's very staid, it's very stable. And all of a sudden now we've had this new element of venture capital. We've seen all these startups and we've started to see these exits, but I don't feel like people know how to properly value the growth. It's it's hard to compare, like you just don't have a basis for comparison really in our industry. And so I think that's been part of the ups and downs is trying to understand, you know, what the the proper valuation and you know you can see an early growth profile but inevitably right it's going to tail off and so that's where you know you start getting under the hood and understanding what is truly different about this business what are they doing that nobody else is doing and i look at to your point the big data piece do you have some new insight that nobody else has i think about carrie and Adele and loop insurance of hey we know which streets are safer so yeah, we've got the same information about the driver. We have the same information about the vehicle, but we have this third part that nobody else has. And we know how safe the streets are where these people drive. And so that's giving us a special insight, right? Um, or whether or not you've got just a better experience, right? Whether you're truly different. And to your point, hey, for most of us, we don't have claims that often and and we don't purchase insurance that often. So like whether somebody's experience is, you know, fractionally better than someone else's isn't actually that material or relevant. It's not something where it's a high, you know, volume where I'm I'm buying a lot of things. And if you don't deliver, I'm gonna switch to to somebody else. Yeah. You do have to have an absolute unique, you know, like and this is part of any lean canvas. If you if you use lean canvas as a way to document a startup or talk about a business. It's, they call it your unique value proposition. What makes you unique and different? Like we're building claim software right now, TerraClaim. It's, it's really designed for the small market, for SIGs and SIFs. What, what makes us unique is that we have deep levels of integration with our, with our ancillary providers. We, we actually leverage machine learning and AI in a way that helps us do some really unique things. And we've, we have built a lot of automation in that, that uh, we believe will re will dramatically reduce the amount of manual tasks that adjusters are having to perform right i mean that's those three things combine each other make us absolutely unique uh we we already have big data because we've had a claims benchmarking system as part of that for nine years so we have the ability to make reserve recommendations already based on millions of claims and so you you, you do have to have some absolute uniques because if you're just building 
another piece of software for the sake of being another piece of software. That's, you know, it, it is a way to build a business, but it's not uh, particularly compelling when you're talking to users. You really, you, you really want to have a, a, a streamlined user interface. You want it to be easier to use and deploy. You know, and even from a technology perspective, it can, it can be unique and different. For instance, the fact that it's cloud native or you know whatever you're building, if it's cloud native and extensible, they don't have to buy or install anything. They don't have to worry about servers or, or virtual machines. That is an absolute unique in insurance because so many of the systems require an on-premise installation or, or going with a really complex cloud setup rather than just turning it on. Having a full robust API so you can access all the data in your claims and policy system, that's important and rare, right? So th- there, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of ways to to distinguish yourself. But for these insure techs, I would say you could argue that we're in a couple of different phases. You could say that we're in the toddler phase. And if you've had toddlers, and Rob, you and I both have, we both have multiple kids, um, you know it's an area for a lot of bruises because they're 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 walking, starting to run, they're stumbling, they, they run their head into every corner in the house that you have, uh, they stick their finger into sockets. And you could argue that we're in the toddler phase because we keep injuring ourselves and we're learning how it goes and the parents are starting to size us up. You could also argue that we're in the, the early 20s. You know, That's where you, you're out of college, your, your body starts to decline a little bit, and you start to get injured a lot, and you have to go down for injury. So I don't know, because I, I kind of feel like the IPO phase was the going to college <laughs> phase. And now that these companies are public, now they're in their mid-20s, and they're having to like sort their life out and figure out their life purpose. And I, and I, I would argue that maybe the lemonades and the roots, they're in that post-college awkward transition phase when you know, life's hitting them in the face and they got to figure it out. It doesn't mean they're not going to be successful. I, I'm excited that new brands are being in, introduced into mainline insurance. That's important. Yeah, 100%. That dynamicism is important. And we know, right, the majority of these startups are going to fail. Uh, but we also know some are going to succeed and they're going to succeed widely. And I think you are going to start to see that turnover. So when we look at, right, the top 10 insurers in 2030 and then 2040, I, I think you're going to start to see more turnover. So I fully expect that you have a mix. You're going to have a mix of startups that are just incredibly successful, and you're going to have some incumbents that are able to adapt, right? But then you're going to have others that don't adapt, that, you know, have a high expense ratio, maintain that, and then increasingly become, you know, uncompetitive over time. And obviously you're going to have the, the startups that are washing out. So I, I call it the mixed modal environment, right? Where I, so you know, let me be clear, like InsurTech is not a fad. There are emerging technologies that are radicalizing, radically changing the way that insurance is is, is bought, sold, uh, the capabilities of it, um, you know, embedded insurance, things like that. I think a lot of these overall trends are real. The winners and losers, right? We, we can follow kind of the soap opera. Those are going to shake out. But um, I'm excited about the fundamental capabilities that are being demonstrated. And again, I just feel like we're just starting. You mentioned inspection reports, James, and as a consumer of inspection reports, when I was at USA, like we use so little on that actual report, right? It's like we get the recommendation from the inspector. We might look at one or two things, you know, we were lucky if we even captured all the field of data we didn't do anything with the pictures like maybe an underwriter takes a look at it but there was no ai right we couldn't tell the damage we couldn't tell how long is that going to last we couldn't tell and then the underwriters themselves they weren't necessarily making consistent decisions so underwriter a are they making the same decision on the same inspection that underwriter b c or, or d would make and so um just the use of and then right hey you tell that person you got to take some action or we're going to non-renew you well did they take it or not right well before you kind of had to take their word for it or pay for another inspection it's like now you can see that 
with the timely satellites, aerial imagery, whatever. So I, I just, you know, so many examples, too many to go into, but we're just starting to scratch the surface. And there's a whole world of unstructured data out there, whether that be, you know, text, whether that be handwritten notes, whether that be images, videos, you name it, that we've never really, we're still kind of mostly living in this relational database world, right? And so we're starting to open up to all these possibilities and the vast majority of data that measures risk and exposure is of this unstructured variety. And we're just scratching the surface on what, what you can do. So I agree, it's a data story and it's a user experience stories and innovation. Um, it's not just a, you know, applying tech to insurance story. That's what differentiates insure tech. And we are seeing that it's just not fully mature yet. The picture is not, the mosaic isn't fully, uh, yeah. fully all together yet. I do have a technologist bias on this as, as someone who started out writing all the code for my company 21 years ago and spent a lot of years writing software. I get the most excited about the actual technology itself. And I recognize that the headlines tend to be about the company that become insurance companies to compete with the incumbent carriers. But honestly, I'm more excited about all the technology tools that are out there to radically improve the existing markets that are already out there. And, 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 Again, I think it's a bright future for InsureTech, and I don't want—I don't want anybody out there to misinterpret what I'm saying as me being a, a naysayer on InsureTech as a whole. I think it's got a really bright future. We're, we're just going through the usual stumbling blocks of a new emerging market. Um, I, I am—I am really excited about the use of data, and in particular, unstructured data, documents, free text, pictures, video. I'm really excited about the use of telemetry. I'm really excited about the use of satellite imagery. I'm really excited about the use of public source databases. I'm really excited about um, you know automation tools. Robotic process automation is really cool and underutilized. I'm really excited about all of those things, right? There's so much work to be done. I'm really excited about cloud native architecture. If if all of InsureTech was just about bringing all of our solutions onto cloud native architecture, that would be a huge win for the industry because it's going to reduce deployment costs, hosting costs, Scale it's going to increase scalability. It's going to hopefully help on security and deployment. I mean, there's a lot of big wins there. If we just focused on getting rid of COBOL, AS400, and legacy mainframe systems and moving to <laughs> scalable, flexible systems, we could really dramatically impact the entire industry. So the tooling is just as exciting as as the companies that are public. And what you're seeing right now was it was it was an irrational IPO market that overvalued. Uh, and based on a metric, I'm still not quite sure what they base the value on. Anyway, it's been an exciting three years. It's been an exciting, what, year and a half, two years with you getting to interview all these amazing companies and really transformative businesses. What do you think, just as we wrap up, um, if you were writing the book now, what would you include that you didn't include three years ago? You know, I, I think um, really focusing in on some more um, – you know, use cases and, and really helping people kind of think outside the box, um, I, I think is important. And there's some exciting in places like Africa and Latin America, um, in some ways, areas of the world that have been underserved by the insurance market, you have, and maybe, right, what solutions they do have tend to be kind of the regional branch of some large European insurer, some large North American insurer. And you have people there that are thinking about um, very kind of micro insurance type things, parametric covers, really, and, and really adapting kind of, you know, new innovative solutions for those markets where, quite frankly, you have a lot of people that are still, right, putting money under the mattress, so to 
speak, right, or relying on family savings or whatnot, and they really haven't benefited from private insurance. So yes, insurance is a well-established industry. It's been around for centuries, right? But yet there's still so much opportunity. So I love seeing the expansion of the marketplace, particularly as we bring that cost floor down as expense ratios drop, right? And being able to do things that are you know, five to 10% expense ratios, it seems kind of unheard of, right? But now we're technically possible. So that's the part that I'm really excited about. And then you know, really just, uh, I talked to folks about the scaled technologies in terms of classes of emerging technologies and quickly it's, you know, sensors, right? Streaming data um, that you can observe behaviors in a way before you had proxies, right? Age, general, marital status for auto insurance. I don't need that anymore. I can directly see how you drive <laughs> based on telematics, cloud computing, advanced algorithms, including artificial intelligence, localized knowledge, right? GPS, we talked about the aerial imagery, efficiencies in the back office, we talked about RPA, there's OCR, there's natural language processing and understanding technologies, all those manual touch points throughout all these workflows and underwriting claims and otherwise, right? Automating all that. And then digital distribution and communication and not having to sit face-to-face -face in an office across from a broker, right? Um, and so whether it's intermediated or not, and I am of the full belief that people just want the easy button for insurance. So whether that involves a person, an agent, whether I do it myself or whatever, just get me from you know the beginning to end as quickly as possible. That's what I really care about. Um, and so I, I think you'll continue to see both direct models and kind of you know agent-supported models. I don't think agents are going away anytime soon, despite their demise. People have been talking about the last 30 years. But those wow. technologies, I think, just really focusing on those and and maybe less so on some of the other buzz uh, technologies you know blockchain is still one i think we're searching for a use case yeah. for and things like that <laughs> not that might not fine but there's a lot a of buzz about that it's really kind of calmed down there has and because they're like well we have blockchain we put our certificates of insurance in blockchain oh okay <laughs> uh, all right so you've immut immutable ledger but you already had a secure database that nobody could alter either, right? Like, what's the unless <laughs> every, right. <laughs> unless everybody uses the blockchain for this? Like, unless you can get everybody to buy in, exactly how was that useful, right? I mean, blockchain is proven to be very useful for digital currencies for crypto, and you know the crypto markets, of course, collapsed as well. But uh, you know, led by Bitcoin, is, is totally collapsed. But you know, it it uh, doesn't mean it's the end of it. I, I think I think cryptocurrencies have a future, but probably ones that are going to be authorized and regulated by federal governments around the world. Because it, don't don't ever think that governments are going to let go of their control of currencies. Just don't ever fool yourself there. Uh, but block yeah, blockchain is definitely one that people have you know a lot of noise about it. But does it really does it really drive a better outcome? That's that's the big question. Is, is there really a better outcome because of the use yeah. of blockchain, or is this is this just a new way you're storing all the information so it can't be ever be edited? And and wasn't your database secure anyway before, and only you could edit anyway? So does that really matter? You know that that's that's really I think the um, the yeah the um, the important d delineator uh, on, on this. So bright future I think uh, we've got to go through some some normal normal growth pains. Uh, on insure tech, we've got to go through some normal learning periods. You've got to have companies go public and see how the public markets, uh, you know, deal with them, and uh, and then and then grow and learn from there. Uh, pretty classic hype cycle, right? So, you know, that peak of expectations and then the crash of reality, and then you grow out of that. So uh, it's a, it's an exciting time. Well, uh, Rob, it was a good uh, good discussion, and and uh, thanks for chatting, and congratulations on three years of uh, your book being out there. Yeah, I appreciate it, James. Love the conversation. It was a great way to just kind of take a moment and uh, reflect uh, on where we've been and where we're going this episode. So I hope the listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. Oh, yeah. I enjoyed the heck out of it. I always, I always enjoy talking with my fellow Texan Michigander, what I call a 
Texagander uh, about uh, about InsureTech. This has been another episode of the InsureTech Geek Podcast powered by JB Knowledge. That's jbknowledge.com. All about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com. With co-host Rob Galbraith, that's endofinsurance.com. A big thanks to Jim Greenley, our podcast producer, and Kara Daltonara, our creative producer. Thank you for joining us today. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time.